Well, I invite you to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 6, launching into a new chapter this evening, and um, I'm only going to look at the first four verses, um, but uh, I want to read the 11 verses just for a bit of context, and uh, before we do that, let's pray again, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Again, we pray your help in understanding it, and Lord, may you open up to us uh, that we may rejoice in your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Paul says, uh, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death, in order that just as Christ uh, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who, has died has been, uh, one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. So we have some, and we have had some Americans in our congregation. We haven't have other, had others in the past. And uh, we have some Americans in our, uh, our presbytery, uh, missionaries who've uh, who are working with, alongside us, and at times that we, you know, I get to talk to our American friends uh, about what it's like to live and move, uh, to move to another country and to live here, and um, and you might think that there, there are not that many things that are different between uh, uh, the United Kingdom and the United States, um, but it's. But often the comment, is, comment that comes back is uh, there are so many things that are different in so many small ways. Yeah. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? Uh, and, and it's very important for missionaries to understand this because uh, often they think, well, it's easy because we're in, we speak English here. And then they come over and discover everything's different and then uh, uh, have a, sometimes an adverse reaction to the fact that everything's so different and get a bit disappointed um, now, I'm just telling you all that 
uh, it's just interesting from, from missiology. But uh, I'm just telling you all that by way of introduction to the matter at hand, which is in uh, Romans 6, 1 to 4, uh, which kind of asks the question, what, the question behind what I'm going to say here is, what is it that makes, what di- practical difference does it make being a Christian in the world? What difference does it make being a Christian in the world? Um, because the Bible compares what you were like before and what you've become now as Christian as something like emigrating to a new land. Uh, so Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. You get that sense of uh, having emigrated or been transferred over from one place to another. And it's this transition to a new life, as it were, into a new country that Paul begins to introduce to us in Romans chapter 6. And he continues on with that uh, uh, beyond chapter 6. Now we've, we've seen already that uh, central to the gospel, uh, the, seen how central rather the gospel is to Paul and his ministry. It was his, uh, of course, his driving principle. If you look back to that key verse in 116.17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it a righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is a a gospel that Paul wanted to preach everywhere. Uh, He was desperate to to preach it to the Romans, but he wants to go through Rome eventually, and he's going to go to Spain, as he tells us in in chapter 15. Uh, He he wants to preach this gospel to everybody. And and to to explain the gospel and to explain his missionary endeavor and just his basic philosophy of ministry, uh, he explains, he spells out why the gospel is necessary. Um, mankind left himself, is steeped in his unrighteousness and godlessness. And uh, he ignores God in spite of the witness of creation and the witness of his conscience. Um, mankind just ignores God. And man has this sort of fundamental lack of righteousness uh, that he needs, you and I, we need to stand before God. In his holiness. And because of that lack, left to himself, mankind uh, stands under the judgment of God. And we were thinking a fair bit about that this morning. The judgment of God. Um, And we're just waiting. Mankind is just waiting for the judgment to come uh, in due time. But of course the good news is this. That God has not left us to ourselves, but he has given us his promised uh, son, Jesus Christ. Who comes to spill his own blood Uh, for us to give his life, to be that propitiatory sacrifice that stands in the place of sinners, takes the judgment, as it were, that future judgment, uh, that eschatological judgment is brought forward into the life of Christ, and Jesus bears it for his people. And, And thus his people can go free. All those who trust in him, faith in him, repent of their sins, come to him, and they can be free. Uh, of that, uh, that uh, sentence that rests upon them. So, and so we saw in chapter 5 this wonderful contrast that is laid out that all mankind is represented by Adam and uh, 
And Adam is, is the head of this humanity and is marked by sin and condemnation and therefore death. But under a new head now, Jesus Christ, the new Adam, the last Adam, uh, a new humanity is constituted, which is now marked by this righteousness, justification, and life. And uh, uh, you know, to be in Christ is then to be uh, ready for this new humanity for all eternity. Uh, righteousness is provided, uh, it's by which we are justified, uh, and it's through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now that's wonderful, that's, this is all the great stuff that has happened in the past. But of course that's not all that is true of the Christian. Because now we have to think about the walk of the Christian. Uh, what do I mean by the walk of the Christian? The, the life that is lived now by the Christian. Uh, and two key phrases now in this, chap- this passage, these verses, uh, identify... Uh, define the identity, rather, of the believer. Um, verse 2, he says that uh, we are who, those who died to sin. We died to sin. And then in verse 4, uh, uh, we've been raised to death just as Christ was raised from dead, that we too uh, might walk in newness of life. So that idea of being dead to sin and now walking in newness of life, these are two identifying features uh, of what a Christian now is. Dead to sin, and walking in newness of life. But let's start where, where Paul starts, and he starts with the question, what should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Um, Paul is not proposing that as a valid question. He's, he's saying... Some of you who are listening to this letter will be asking that question. If, if grace is so free, uh, why can't Christians just keep sinning? And I think Paul would answer that, would say that's the kind of question that a legalist will ask. <coughs> just think for, uh, about Paul for a minute. Think about him being brought up as a Jew. Uh, he trained under the, uh, in the, the best school in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. He was zealous for the cause of first century Judaism. Uh, he, he knew how the Jews thought. He, uh, he thought about their lives. And it's, it's very important to recognize that because a large chunk of this letter so far has been addressed to converted Jews in the congregation as well as uh, Gentiles. But he understood how important to the Jews keeping the law was uh, for them. And, and so thinking like a Jew, as he does, and he knows how they think, um, here's the problem that arises for a Jew, he, and possibly even for a converted Jew, who's, who doesn't yet have everything kind of clear in his mind yet about the gospel. If righteous, here's the problem. If righteousness comes by faith... And there is sufficient grace to cover every sin, as we found in the last chapter, then why not just keep on sinning? After all, it's all going to be covered, isn't it? And that's a question that a legalist would ask, because his way of thinking is uh, you've got to keep the law. So here's Paul, who seems to be saying something different. 
Doesn't this mean that there is no point to living a holy life because it's all free? Uh, and such a, a situation might be inconceivable to uh, a, an unconverted Jew or possibly a Jew that hasn't got everything straight yet. Now, it's not just first century Jews that think that way. Uh, modern people think that way. Um, I, I remember an example of this, an ex- extreme example of this. When Susan was a, a school teacher in the west of Scotland, we were still just newly wed uh, in the late 80s. Um, uh, Susan was a young teacher, and, and she had a visitor. She ran a Christian uh, union group in her the, in the school and, uh, and a South American former gang and drug uh, gang member and drug dealer and, and even murderer uh, had come to testify to his faith in Christ. He'd come to speak to those kids about faith in Christ. How he had been changed by uh, the grace of God. And, uh, and it's an amazing story, isn't it? It's all, great to hear these amazing stories of people being transformed by the gospel. But the problem arose with the kids. They said, how can somebody who has done so many terrible things in the past be forgiven of all their sins? Surely he had to have something good about him for God to have saved him. And it's impossible for us to believe that the gospel could be so free. Um, everybody's a little legalist, really. We've got to be able to do something to prove to God that we're good enough. And people in, people in Solihull think this way as well. I've, I've met people, many people over the years, um, who have come to f- fundamentally believe that you need to have lived a good life if God is to accept you. I've had so many conversations with people uh, as we've done door-to-door work or uh, outreach in the, in, in the town center and so on. And when you tell them no, you don't have to have done any of that to come to Jesus, to be saved. Uh, they just don't believe it. They find it hard to believe. Surely you've got to do something. You've got to be good enough. What's the point of living a good life then? Why bother? That's, that's the whole thinking behind it. We may well struggle with that this, this evening. You might think, how can God be so gracious to somebody who could be so sinful. Maybe there's something in you that still struggles to truly accept that. That God, even, even your own sin, that God can truly accept you and overcome and cover your sin. And you may harbor this desire that somehow you still, I need to still contribute something to my salvation. And I've still got some commendable feature about myself that I can perhaps present to God. And God will say, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yes, of course you can come in. If it's so free, why, why, why do anything? Why bother? Uh, is the question. And, uh, but I think behind that question, is, is a failure to understand the, the true power of the transformation that God seeks to bring through his Holy Spirit, through the power of the gospel into a person's life. And Paul's answer to this rhetorical question 
in verse 2. Might well take them by surprise. Uh, So here's the question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Answer, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, he says, you Christians cannot continue to sin. You can't continue to sin. So let me move to our next point and talk about a new realm that Christians have been translated into. I introduced us to this idea earlier on. To understand why Paul says this, that you can't continue to sin, we need to understand something about sin. And notice how he puts the question. He is asking a question, but he knows what the answer is. You cannot live in sin. But it's a very interesting phrase. How can you still live in it? How can you live in sin? And it's, it's almost as though he's saying, sin is a place. It's not just a habit. It's not just an activity that you do. It is a place that you can dwell in. And he says, how can you still live in this place called sin? It's like it's, like it's a separate country. And people of this, this world live, live in this country. People all over live in this country all the time. But Christians, you don't live in that country anymore. You live somewhere else. You have moved out with divine help. You have emigrated from that place called sin. And you live in that new place. Something's happened to you. You've believed. You've come to living faith in Jesus Christ. And through that faith you've been delivered into a new country out of a place called sin. Do you get the idea? A a transference has happened from one kingdom to another. And so now he says you are Dead to sin. Now that's strong language, but think of it as this this way. Think of it in this way. When someone dies, we often think of them going away, don't we? We think of the person having gone from us. And this is kind of what Paul means here. That as far as the old country is concerned, as far as sin is concerned, you are gone. You are out of that realm. You have been moved out. You are dead to it. It is to that realm you have died because you have gone and been taken away by Christ. It really is like you have, be, you have emigrated to a new land. Now one of the things that people find most difficult about emigrating and taking up a new nationality in another country is leaving the old country behind. Uh, You still kind of think you're there. Uh, It took us a long time moving down from Scotland to come to England in 1989 uh, for us not to be, to hanker after going back to the old country. To feel that you want to be there. And you miss your friends, you miss the old habits and the old places that you knew. And, uh, you know, I still read the Scottish section of the Times to find out what's going on. In Scotland, and no doubt some of you do the same thing with your countries you've come from. But there's, but this, a similar kind of thing kind of happens when you become a Christian. You're transferred from this this place called sin into this new land, the kingdom of His beloved Son. Uh, but you still keep wanting to look back. <laughs> you still think about the old land. 
You still think about the old habits. You still want to find out what's going on there. But you don't live there anymore. It actually isn't your identity any longer if you're a Christian. That old life, that old place called sin. You have a new nationality, a nationality that is defined by Jesus Christ. So I ask you this evening, what's your identity? Where do you live, spiritually speaking? Are you living in that place called sin? I think if you're living there, you're not yet a Christian. You love being there, and you haven't moved. And you need to get out. You need to be transferred out of that place called sin. And if you are a Christian, do you see yourself with that new identity that is fundamentally different from the identity that you had before and that people around you perhaps have? You have this new identity in Jesus Christ. Or are you hankering back to the old country to live back in that sinful life? Well, we've been... It's a glorious truth, isn't it? As Christians, we have been transferred into this new land, out of, and we are dead to sin. Uh, We don't any longer live in sin. Now, at this point, uh, Paul does perhaps a strange thing. He introduces baptism. And sometimes Paul throws these things in there, and you think, "Ah, what? What's baptism got to do with this? And... uh, well, what is, he, what is he talking about here? <clears throat> we were buried therefore with him and by baptism into death in order that just as Jesus, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Um, sorry, I missed out verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, I should say here that Paul, one of the natural things we want to do, and I've met people who do this with this verse, is to say, well, what Paul's really talking about here is baptism in the Holy Spirit. He's, he's thinking about a spiritual character, uh, category, not a sacramental category. Um, you know, we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul is not meaning that here. He is actually talking about your baptism. And he means the water and everything. <clears throat> so, and of course, what he's doing is here is he is uh, he he's assuming um, justifying faith, which is what he's been discussing in chapters three, four, and five. But now his focus moves on to the baptism itself and that act that um, these believers underwent. He's thinking, and not, he's not even thinking about the mode of baptism. By the way, just in case you're wondering. Um, you know, that, you know that, that down and up motion that you know, our, our friends in Baptist churches will say, well, Jesus died and rose again, and, uh, just like, uh, and that's just like uh, full immersion baptism, isn't it? We, we go down into the water and we come back up again. And uh, the, you know, the fluid dynamics of it forces you back up. It's, <laughs> as you fall back, the, the wave comes back and pushes you up again. It's, uh, Paul is not thinking that way. It's not, because burial in the first century was not a matter of going down into the ground, believe it or not. It was a matter of being lifted up into a catacomb. Uh, so he's not thinking about the mode of baptism here. So don't, don't be confused by that. 
he is thinking about what baptism signifies. And he says, um, it's what it signifies about our identity uh, in Christ. Because baptism signified the identification of the believer with his leader, her leader. uh, And the leader's actions. Hence, he says, you are baptized into Christ. So when you are baptized, you are identified. You identify with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And you see this in other places. You see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, We've got another mention of baptism. This time Paul speaks of the Israelites being baptized into Moses. Now why is that? Uh, Because they... followed Moses, and they identified with Moses. And as they went through the Red Sea, they went through the same experience as Moses. And so, as Moses was led to freedom, so the people were led to freedom. And remember, the judgment comes in on the Egyptian armies afterwards. And so we as Christians, we are baptized into Christ, which means that we are now identified with him in his death and his resurrection. We have gone, we have left this world and died, but we have risen again to life, into a newness of life. And this is how baptism actually is really important and useful to the believer in his or her thinking about him or herself. Because... My baptism serves as a continual reminder to me of what I am in Christ Jesus. What Jesus Christ has done for me and where he has taken me. That I am no longer in that old country, that place of slavery, that place of sin. But I'm now in this new place where Jesus is the king and he is my Lord. And I'm no longer under the power and authority of sin, but I'm under the power and authority of Jesus Christ. This new country, characterized instead by grace. Therefore, I don't need to live like I lived before. I live, indeed I must not live like I lived before. I must live a new life in this new kingdom. And it continues to surprise me, I think, just how Little baptism figures in the life of believers today. Uh, I, know, I know somebody from years ago uh, in, the, in a previous church when we were living in Derby still. And um, there was an elderly gentleman who came to faith in the 1950s uh, at, at a Billy Graham uh, crusade. And uh, he, would, uh, he would bring out his decision card that he had got on that day, that day, he got a decision card and said on this date, whatever it was, uh, so-and-so gave his life to Jesus Christ or something like that. And he's got his decision card in his Bible. And uh, every so often he pulls it out and encourages himself uh, about what happened to him uh, those 50 or 60 years ago. But he never thought about his baptism. He thought about his decision for Jesus. I've even heard a pastor in another situation, a friend of mine, uh, who told me once that he counseled a church member to gain assurance of his salvation by looking back at his own past experience of conversion. 
What Paul is doing here is he's saying, look at your baptism. And rest on all that Jesus has done and all that that signifies. And that's where you get your assurance from. Not in your past experiences, which can be deceptive. Paul wants believers to be reminded of what has happened to them and that they are identified with Jesus Christ by looking to their baptism and to say, yeah, I have a new life now. This is what Martin Luther used to do. You know, he, I've told you the story of how he was constantly assailed with accusations from the evil one and he constantly wanted to confess his sins before he discovered the gospel. But the temptations never stopped, even after he discovered the gospel. He still had those accusatory darts coming from Satan saying, you're such a sinner, you're such a sinner, and you're such a sinner. And he learned to be able to say to Satan, yes, but I'm a baptized man. Christ has died for me. My baptism encourages me. So, he speaks about baptism. But finally, let's uh, talk about walking the walk now uh, as Christian people who are baptized into Christ Jesus. Um, This, of course, has implications for our lives now because Paul is moving on here to show that this justifying faith, which we all have as Christians, is not an impractical faith that makes no real and visible difference to our lives. Actually, it makes every difference. Because in verse 4 we discover that in Christ we have been raised to walk in newness of life. And Paul uses this word walk uh, to describe the everyday life of the Christian. Uh, And you know, think about it, you can't walk invisibly. Uh, It's kind of weird if you try. You can't walk invisibly. Uh, When everyone else is standing around and you're walking, everybody can see you. You can see a person moving through a crowd. When everybody else is walking in another direction, following other leaders and other gurus, you are going in a different direction, walking in a different direction because you are following Christ. Uh, You are going in a different direction. That will be seen in the world if you are following Christ. And so the conclusion that Paul comes to here is that if you profess to have this faith that he is speaking of, it results in more than simply passively receiving forgiveness of sins while you carry on as you are. Rather, it results in you walking in a different direction from the rest of the world. You are changed. You've left that country of sin and death, and you are now in a new country ruled by Jesus Christ, his country of grace and life. That's what happened to many people when they discovered Jesus, when they, they met Jesus. You read about it in the Bible. Think of Zacchaeus, uh, that short man who had to climb a tree to see Jesus passing by. Uh, he'd been guilty in the past of extorting money, but he was never the same after Jesus came to his house. And he lived a new life, and he stopped his old ways, and he made uh, restitution for all his past sins. Because he'd come to love Jesus Christ. Everything changed for him. Friends, I just ask you this evening, have you made that decided break with the world that Jesus Christ has given you? Has Jesus walked into your life and have you heard him call you to a new life to leave the old ways behind? And if somebody's not a Christian, they need to die to that old world in order to enter this new world. 
and come under the kingship of Jesus. And if you are a Christian, will you do what Paul says here and remember into whom you have been baptized, into Jesus Christ? And to say to yourself regularly and frequently, I am now in a new country and help me to walk according to your ways. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the comprehensiveness of the salvation that you've given to us in Jesus Christ. And I pray you'd help us to resist the the, the draw of the world back into its clutches, but to remember what we are in Jesus Christ and to seek then to live for him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.